Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those of you who are tuning in for the first time, the Unity Project podcast is one about the relationships that we have with our bodies. I had the honor of interviewing a wonderful woman named Julissa Josa for this interview. Julissa is a teacher, an interpreter, a social worker. She's an artist. She is an incredible person that I learned so much from. We talked about a lot in this episode. It was one that actually I thought about weeks and months after we had the conversation because we talked about some stuff that I I don't know if I've really fully put into words before, but all, all that's revolving around the patriarchy and what it's like to be a woman in the patriarchy. We talked about how it feels to want to be able to express ourselves and have freedom with our bodies and not feeling like we have to hide our bodies and feel ashamed of them, while also wanting to protect ourselves and keep ourselves and our bodies safe. There is a lot of complexity and a lot to be talked about when it comes to being a woman or someone who identifies as a woman in a patriarchal world. And so I'm happy that we were able to just honestly barely scratch the surface of that conversation. That's something that I hope to talk about a lot more because it really got me thinking in a way that felt important. Anyway, other than that, we talked a lot about her story as an immigrant. Adrelisa actually immigrated from Peru to America when she was 11, and she came without a mother at the time. There's a whole story about that, and it is a really incredible and important story to listen to. Uh, We talked a lot about that journey that she had and a lot about just assimilation in general and what that does to a person's body when they leave a land that they have had ancestors in for hundreds of years, used to the climate, the land, the food, the tradition, and then all of a sudden uprooted and put somewhere on the other side of the world. A lot happens there that I have a lot to learn about. And so that was very, very interesting to to learn from her story. I had so much fun talking to Julissa, and I'm so excited to get to finally share this interview with you. So I hope that you guys enjoy. Julissa, how is it going over there in Queens, New York? Hey, Jackie. Um, it's going well. We had a sunny day today in mid-November, so that that was a surprise. Um, yeah. But yeah, I'm feeling good. Um, it's going well. That's awesome. I'm in San Diego, so it's also sunny, but it's probably not as much of a surprise. Alyssa, thank you so much for wanting to be on this podcast with me. I've been really excited to interview you. I found you, I think I searched the hashtag embodiment a while ago, and one of your posts popped up. Uh, I think it was a piece of clay that you worked on. It's so, so beautiful. I've just been scrolling through your page all day, looking at all your, uh, the work that you've done. And do you sell those pieces? Ah, yeah, I mean, that's a little complicated. Right now, I'm making a lot of pieces, um that are like a direct influence from pieces that were buried um, in ceremonial sites thousands and hundreds of years ago. Um, So I'm directly informed by that lineage. um, And a lot of these pieces are now living in our world, these original pieces, but they live in museums um, or they live in like private collections um, and they're not accessible to the people. And so I'm trying to figure out what that means as I bring that lineage back. Um, Mm -hmm. If selling is actually the the correct thing to do, or if I want them to intentionally go into ceremonial spaces or into communities. So I'm still in the process of figuring out like where they're going to live long, long term. Um, Yeah. Just because it's like a, such a special um, gift and honor that I feel like, my ancestors have given me that I'm able to make these pieces. 
Yeah, that is so awesome and beautiful. And I feel like I have so many questions just about that. I love that, that whole story and process of that and not jumping instantly to how can I market this and whatnot. That's really refreshing and beautiful to hear. Thank you. I mean, it's, it's kind of hard, you know, because the, the modern day art world has a lot of complex and dark and mm, like disturbing history when it comes to indigenous artwork. Um, mm. So I'm, you know, navigating that ocean um, while also trying to honor the pieces and their original intent uh, in terms of ceremony and holding our lineage. That sounds really, really special. So um, good luck on that process. I, I've i been just recently getting really into ancestry type stuff. And so I'm very, very new, but very curious. So it's going to be really fun to, to talk to you today. Uh, do, do you want to give our listeners a quick little introduction of um, a little bit just of who you are? Sure. Yeah. Okay. So my name is Julissa Veronica Josavite. Um I am born in Peru, in Callao, which is a coastal city. Um, but my ancestral hometown is Sechura, which is the northern coast of Peru. Um, and I have other ancestral towns within Peru, but that lineage is a little bit harder to trace um, just because of colonization and just mm, displacement. Um, and a lot of movement from rural indigenous areas into the big cities. Um, so Callao is right next to Lima. It's one of the big cities. Um, so yeah, that's where I'm from. I uh, am an artist. I am a New York City public school, high school teacher. I teach art. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, I'm also a therapist. I went to social work school and, you know, I'm working on getting my I'm an LMSW, but I'm working on my LCSW. Hopefully that comes through soon. Um, So, yeah, there's a lot of different backgrounds that I've been able to explore um, and learn from. Yeah, so (laughs) I'm like an intersection of a whole bunch of different identities. Yeah, that, that is so cool. I love that you're an art teacher. I think that that's so special. My art teacher in elementary school was like my one of my favorite teachers. I have such incredible memories just getting to talk about expressing yourself in all these different ways. And so I bet you have so much to offer your students. So that's very cool. Uh, Julissa, to start off our conversation, um, I'm going to ask you to describe the relationship that you have with your body. Ah... <sighs> tell me about it (laughs) Uh, um, I have a a very complex history with my body Um, I mean all of us do right I'm not like unique in that way but I've been intentionally right now at least in the process that I am intentionally intentionally calling in is the listening Um, so listening to sensations, listening to pain, um, listening to warmth or coolness, um, the messages that my body sends me and listening to them without trying to fix it or without trying to change it. Um, Mm. cause for so, for so long, you know, I would be immersed in, um, like a yoga practice or immersed in some sort of healing modalities. You know, I've dabbled in lots of different healing modalities and I would feel something and I would immediately be like, oh, I know what the stretch will be for this. Or, oh, I know the exact like tincture or herb that will make um, my tummy feel better. Um, But in that, in that um, reflex to try to fix or to try to heal or to try to mend um, often the sensation actually got lost and I would go straight into um, action as opposed to really like sitting and listening. And I've actually found out uh, very recently that sometimes if I have lower back pain, it actually just means that my lower back wants me to like lay down on the mat and listen to that pain and feel that pain. And if I feel that pain for, I don't know, let's say five to 10 minutes, like 
usually the pain will be like, okay, thank you. Like, thank you for hearing me. Thank you for seeing me. And in some ways it will dissipate or it will feel, um, it won't feel as urgent or it won't feel as painful. Um, so I'm really working right now on that process of listening. Um, yeah, but so that's the relationship that I'm cultivating right now. But I feel like in different stages of my life, um, depending on where I am or, yeah, just in like general circumstances, I've been able to discern um, different relationships or understand my body in different ways. Wow, that is, that is really really special just how you described the listening relationship that's actually something I've been uh talking a lot about in my personal life just about how to recognize the voice of my body in different scenarios and how to kind of discern what is making my body feel safe just authentically or what I think I need to feel safe based on the rules of society and culture and all that stuff and so I love hearing you talk about this it's very very cool especially when you go into the like not taking not instantly taking an action to fix it because that's um, mine and probably so many people's first instinct because we want to get rid of the pain or we want to fix the problem but sometimes it's kind of like when you when you go to a friend when you're upset and you want them to just listen to you versus them give you like a solution yes exactly that's exactly it which I actually have a hard time doing that because I you know I'm like clinically trained uh, as a social worker so I'm like I have I recognize in myself a a tendency to judge um and to diagnose right whether um whether that be myself or others and that's also something that I'm working on in terms of my own mental health um because then that also translates into judging myself um yeah so it's kind of like a similar parallel process where instead of like diagnosing uh, the pain you really just listen to it and exactly like you said when you go to a friend who really just wants you to hear them out Oh yeah, I don't know if I've talked about that specific thing on here before. So that's that's a really really good thing for just my own self to to be aware of. How did you get into um, social work and therapy and that kind of stuff? Ah, okay. So I actually come from a long lineage of of teachers. Um, my mom's a school teacher. All of my aunts are teachers. My grandmother was a teacher. All of my cousins are teachers. So it's like the it's like the family profession. So obviously, as when I graduated college, I was like, okay, let me try this teaching thing that we all do. Uh, and I really enjoyed it. And for the first two years, I was just doing that. Um, and then um, I started working at a new school. Um, and a lot of our population here in New York City, the families are um, monolingual in Spanish. So the social worker, uh, her name is Atash. She's one of my great mentors. Um, she called me into her office and she was like, I know that you don't often interpret for us, um, but I really need you to interpret this conversation with this parent um, because it's so urgent for the student. Um, So it turned out that the student was suicidal and it had to do a lot with the relationship that they had with their parent. Um, So I I entered the social work office and I had to interpret. I had to interpret this like life or death um, conversation. Um, between a parent and a daughter and how oh was a lot like, of pressure <laughs> well it was a lot of pressure and it also felt like excuse me like this is happening in the school that I am teaching at um, oh, wow. this work is sacred it's important it's life-saving um, and 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 we're in the same community like I have to be a like if I'm going to be a good teacher, at that moment, I was like, oh, I want to be like a really good teacher. Maybe I need to also incorporate these skills. Um, and also retrospectively, I just, I always like find myself going to where the juiciness is. Um, even if that juice is dark and heavy, you know, as, as the topic of suicide can be, it just, yeah. it, it felt like a place where like I can grow a lot from paying attention to this healing practice, to social work, um, and, and so as I started interpreting these conversations, um, I just fell in love with the practice and I went to social work school and I, I continue to be a teacher, um, but I've, I've, I'm shifting more into 
full-time social work and art. Um, yeah. I can't even imagine because it's like you get this, like first, like like we talked about, it's a lot of pressure and then it happening in your school. And then there's that aspect of like getting to be a fly on the wall in a conversation yes. like that. <laughs> Like I can't imagine that. That's that's such a that's such a special sacred place to be. So that's really cool that that's what led you, or gave you a push into this into this journey. I love that your your family, your ancestors have all kind of worked in this area too. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I you said the phrase the a fly on the wall, but. It, it, it felt also like I was the microphone, right? Because when you're interpreting, you are embodying the words and the message of somebody else. Um, mm. And that message was medicine, was strong medicine that was going to be able to bypass um, the darkness and the blockages of communication between this daughter and this parent. And so I, I was able to embody the medicine that my mentor, Atash, um, was able to provide um so it just you know immediately I got sucked in and I felt um I felt so connected to that that modality oh that's so cool I love that analogy of being the microphone that's really awesome Um, so tell me about your past a little bit and kind of how like I'm assuming as most or everyone, uh, you weren't always feeling connected to your body or listening to your body. Uh, what did that look like before? And what did that journey, what did that journey look like for you? Okay. Um, well, I wanted to tell this story. Um, so when I was very young, uh, maybe, maybe about four, um, I lived with my mom and my dad in this home, and my mom used to um, uh, like give me these baths in the bathtub, and I loved these baths. Uh, and you know, I would be like bathing in the warm water, and then she would come with this like gigantic towel, <laughs> which is really just like a real, like a regular size towel, but <laughs> to my small body, it was just like the biggest towel. And she would wrap me up in a towel and pick me up and she would put me on the couch. Um, And it just, it's like one of my earliest memories of like enjoying being in my body. Um, And and then what I would do is um, I would open up my legs and um, like air out my my vagina or air out my pussy. (laughs) And I loved it because, you know, it had been like in the warm water and I was like, okay, this is great. Now I need some air down there. Uh, and I would just like open up my legs and I would just relax after the bath with my legs open in the couch. Um, yeah. And I loved it, right? Like this felt like a sacred practice. And it's one of my earliest memories of healing ceremony and connection to my body. Um, and then one day, and I did this all the time. So I was confused about why this happened. But one day uh, my mom comes in. And she goes, she says, um, okay, like, can you not do that anymore because your dad is coming home? And I I just, like, I was very confused because it didn't make, it didn't compute in my mind why me enjoying this practice would in any way interfere with my father coming home. Um, Just because, you know, I, like... My father was, like, a really close friend of mine. Like, we would play. Like, it didn't feel like there was any um, any conflict between the two things. Yeah. But the, the tone that she used was very, like, serious. So I knew that I had to do it, but I was very confused. I, I like, did not understand why it would make sense for me to stop. Um, and... That was, like, one of the first times that I feel like I understood that, like, my vagina or whatever was between my legs um, was not not for everyone or was weird or could only come out in certain moments or um, something also relating to, um, like, someone watching this that shouldn't be watching this. Right. So in this case, the male gaze, 
even if it was that of my dad who I felt so close to and who I loved completely at that point in my life. Um, and, and that was really perplexing to me. That was so confusing to me. Uh, and you know, I, like when I think back in that memory, sometimes I'm like, dang, I wish my mom hadn't done that. But then I also see her as trying to teach me even that early on what, how we need to be careful as people with like woman bodies in patriarchy. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I have some, I have some friends who I've talked to about this and, you know, I tell them the different lessons that my mom taught me, um, that allowed me to understand that there was something going on that wasn't safe for me. Um, and my friends say like, they wish that their mom had done that for them because then they had been put in situations where they didn't know that something was wrong or they didn't know that something was off because I didn't have that education of what it's like to have to protect your body as a girl, as a woman in the culture of patriarchy. Um, so that's, that's like one of my first memories of embodiment and being confused about like being a woman in patriarchy um, mm. and just like all of those implications. Okay. How, around how old were you for this story? About four. Oh my gosh. So you are tiny. Yeah. 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 Okay. Wow. So I always find it so interesting when... Um, there's like an exact story somebody can pinpoint to on when their perspective or when their thoughts on their body changed. And I like, I think back to my own or different stories that I've heard and it always has some kind of theme of like just shame. And it likes, it's like we start out as little girls with this freedom and this, this body that we just, we were born with and we love it and we don't mm-hmm. have shame. It's like we don't know shame yet. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that that's such a cute story of you just wanting to air yourself out. <laughs> <laughs> I think I probably did the same thing. <laughs> I mean, why wouldn't you? <laughs> exactly. It and it should. Yeah. And just the concept of like, I don't know, making... I hear that story and it makes me feel like it instilled some kind of fear in you that like, oh, you can get hurt if you show that. Yeah. Does that register? Yes. um, It was definitely told with that tone, like when my mom said that to me because her tone was so serious. Um, But I didn't feel fear at that moment because I am not scared of my father and he's a very kind um, person. And, you know, at that point we were like best friends and I loved him dearly. So um, it didn't automatically go to fear, but it is like when you say the word shame, I also think of shadow, right? You know, I've been studying um, like depth psychology um, and shadow work. And in, it's almost like in that moment, I knew that I had to put that part of my body into the shadow, um, that there was a meaning that was dark in there that I didn't quite understand. And so I needed to protect myself um, until I understood. Um, I couldn't bring it to the light anymore. Okay. Okay, that, there's so much there in that one little bit that you just gave. Wow. Um, I think talking about it in, I guess, the narrative of shadows, it makes a lot of sense to me, actually. I've never heard it expressed that way Mm -hmm. Uh, so when you talk about being a woman in the patriarchy there oh that's like a a spiderweb tide pool of a million things that are so just oh my goodness I have so many thoughts and when you talk about like the um, conversations you had with your friends and some of them told you that they wish their parent were to have tell them it just makes me wonder why and I mean I hear this all the time I'm sure you do too but like why it's the girl's responsibility to learn that they have to protect themselves against boys which honestly that like kind of messes with the boy's head too hearing that language about like oh they need to protect themselves from me that means that I have 
I don't know. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Like putting the onus of that responsibility of protection on the girls. Yeah, it like gives them the victim, like you are, like boys are out to get you. Maybe not that harsh, but in a way, like your body is dangerous. It could hurt you and it could hurt others if we're talking about it from like a religious standpoint or all these different things. But do you want to talk a little bit more about that and your thoughts on kind of what it looks like for a woman to grow up in a patriarchal world? Sure. Um, I have an, I have another story about this. Um, another Lovely. story of when I discovered a different part of my body. Um, so now I'm in the fifth grade. I'm still in Peru. Um, I'm going to Catholic school. And I'm like with my group of friends. They're all girls. And they start talking about how boys like butts. <laughs> And I was like, what the hell? This is the new thing they're into? Or First of all, this is one of the, the first times. Thing. Actually, this is one of the first times that I even talked about what boys might be into. Um, mm. So it was like the first time that that happened to me in the fifth grade. Um, I think I was about 10. And so then I was like, are you serious? Boy like, boys like butts? And they were like, yes, like boys find butts so attractive. And I was like, okay, that's weird. Um, and then like one by one they like started getting up and then we would like judge their butts <laughs> to see if they oh, were wow. like if they were like desirable or not or whatever in the boys gate <laughs> and um so like my friend got up and we were like yeah I mean your butt is nice and then my other friend got up and we were like mm, your butt is oh, like no. a little bit flat <laughs> oh. <laughs> and then like I got up there and my friends just like stood quiet for a moment and I was like, oh shit, is this like good or bad? I can't tell. And then they were like, yeah, you have, you have a big butt. You have oh a nice gosh. butt. Oh my gosh. And I, I remember like feeling like, oh, that's great. Like at least I checked that one box or, um, you know, because it's like, why would you not want to have the desirable thing? So oh, for I, sure. <laughs> so I was like, okay, great. Um, that's but so I also felt strange. I also felt strange because um, this was like around the same time that like reggaeton was really like becoming so graphic um, in terms of the lyrics and and like um, I remember this like boy in my class who sat behind me would like hump my desk. It was just like all oh. of a sudden like I mean we were ten, but all of a sudden this dynamic that I had to play into like was born um and I was confused and bewildered and just trying to figure out how to navigate that yeah yeah it kind of like gives you this I don't know this like set of guidelines of like this is your role mm -hmm. you have a good butt and boys are gonna <laughs> pretend to hump your desk apparently <laughs> I guess I guess that's how it works in patriarchy <laughs> I don't know it's just like we're here for boys in a sense yeah yeah, yeah. the male gaze coming up again in relation to my body and in relation to the value of my body and also in relation to how I am allowed to enjoy or not enjoy my body Mm-hmm. yeah yeah absolutely it's like you're shielding it from them but also like the word is you get worth and value from yeah. them finding you attractive but don't let them see it but make sure they see it enough so that you feel valuable it just it's so it's so tangled it's yeah. confusing it's really confusing oh yeah um what, what did that like look like internally for you like in your mind like how did you do you remember how you felt about it just growing up and how I mean did you just feel confused or yeah, I remember feeling confused and I didn't know how to act really. Um, this this other time, I was, I was also really young for this. I might have been in the second grade and my mom always emphasized like do not let boys touch your, like your mid area. So like your, like she would point to like that area. So I included like the stomach, like pelvis area, like hip area she was very clear with me no one is allowed to touch that 
Mm-hmm. Um, and there was this boy who was just like playing around and he was like singing this song and like at the end he would end by like poking like your your like tummy by like the <sighs> lower part of your tummy. Um, and um, I was like, I immediately did not feel good about it because I knew my mom had told me no one is allowed to touch me there. Um, and so I just like walked away and then I went home and I told my mom and my mom came to the school and like grilled that boy. She was like, never touch my daughter again. Um, et cetera. Like she just like went in on him and like, he just looked scared and he never did it again, obviously. But so it's, it's again, it was convoluted because then I was like, okay, then I have to protect something. Like my mom came to school, like something was off so off that she came to school to like basically yell at this boy and so it's sort of like a balance between like for me it was like deciphering the messages that my mom was like the lessons that she was trying to teach me about like people and how they're they don't have ownership over my body um and also like you said like growing up your body changing understanding whether it's desirable or not and uh, yeah it was just very (laughs) it's very confusing but Mm -hmm. you know again I'm just really grateful to my mom because yeah I I totally get the point that like the onus should not be on the girls to have to go through this like confusing education about how to have a body in patriarchy Mm -hmm. but also we live in patriarchy yeah and our bodies are often subject to um abuse and touch and gaze um because we live in patriarchy right and so sending a girl into the world without that education feels uh, it feels naive and it feels like could end in harm mm-hmm yeah, I totally agree with that. I was just thinking as you were talking, like, in a sense, I don't I don't blame your mom for going and getting upset. First of all, because she wasn't there for the context. And second of all, like, it makes sense to not want your little girl to be touched in that area by boys. And it just makes me feel like this is this the problem of, of it all just runs so deep it's just so deeply ingrained to our culture and society and stuff of what living in the patriarchy even means that it feels really hard to know what the right way to go about it is by like raising a daughter to try and help her feel empowered in her body and no shame and know that like her worth and her value but also protect her because so many people most people don't see bodies that way and it could be dangerous and it's so gray. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. How how would you tell if you had a a daughter or I guess or what what age group do you teach? I teach high school, so teenagers. Okay. Okay, cool. So if you were to talk to either like one of your students or if you had a daughter about this, say like they're around the age that their bodies are changing and they're about to go into the world and meet people and explore, how would you talk to them? Do you think about your body? Have you have you ever thought about it? Well, yeah, I have. I've taught. I've also taught a couple of health classes at my school. Um, so oh, cool. <laughs> so we had to cover um this and you know you know what's been really effective for me as a teacher and also as a student is personal stories which is why I'm focusing so much um like my I had a like a beloved piano teacher who was a nun and she was you know in her 80s and I went to the convent and I would learn to play piano with her because she was just like the kindest most wonderful loving woman um, when I first immigrated to the U.S. and I really needed a mother figure because I came without my mother when I moved to the U.S. Um, and she would also tell me stories. She would say, uh, like, tell me stories of instances in the church, in the Catholic church, where priests or, um, like, male clergy would come on to her or would hit on her. And it just felt so familiar to me because that's the same thing that my mom would do. Like, my mom would tell me stories um, 
of like when she was like groped on like when she was getting into a bus or when she participated in this like healing ceremony by a shaman a shaman who like ended up like I don't know asking her to do something that she felt really uncomfortable with um and so I grew up with women uh elders telling me the the stories of ways in which their bodies were trespassed or their bodies were um um, like treated without the respect that they should have been um, and so when I taught my health class um, the topic of like catcalling like street harassment came up and and I, I told my students you know I told my students how hard it is for me in New York City um, like if I just want to walk out of the house without a bra or if I just want to walk out of the house in like my my tight shorts, um, how much harassment I face on a daily basis. And I tell them my personal stories because then that allows them to also bring in their stories. And the education is really collective, right? And so if you model that vulnerability and that courage of being able to tell your stories, um, then 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 my students and hopefully you know young people won't feel shame or or won't feel isolated if things like this also happen to them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's really cool that you have that platform to be able to do that in the health class. I don't remember having health classes that talked about any of that stuff. We just talked about like drugs and don't have sex or you'll yeah. die. <laughs> uh, that's that is that is awesome and also so true and so sad because I'm just imagining, like, I don't live in New York City, so I don't know what it's like to walk around there all the time, but I'm just imagining wanting to have that freedom to go outside and just be in your body like like we are learning now and, like, wanting to enjoy and be free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the world just not being a safe place for that, so it's like we have a choice to make. Do we cover up mm-hmm. to protect ourselves and sacrifice some of that freedom, or do we... I don't know. It just, it's tough. It's really tough. And I've tried, and like, every strategy there is. You know, I've really? tried, like, <laughs> like <laughs> I've tried, like, um, like, trying to talk back to people. I've tried, like, ignoring. I've tried, like, setting up, like, energetic boundaries as I'm walking down the street. I've tried just, like, turning up my earphones up so high so that I can't hear them. Um <sighs> And then, you know, as I, like I was saying, I've been doing a lot of shadow work and that implies um, bringing out the parts of you that have been put into the shadow to fit into society uh, or to fit into your family or to fit into your school community. Um, but a lot of the times the, the stuff that you put away in your shadow work actually holds a lot of your power. So mm. like... Um, for uh, for a lot of women growing up in patriarchy, we put our our anger in the shadow, right? Because anger is not an emotion that is uh, allowed for women to embody um, as much as like sadness or anxiety or other emotions. Um, and so, <laughs> one of the one of the this past summer, I was like, I was like walking down the street, and this man didn't even say anything, but he said everything with his eyes. <laughs> Oh, that's honestly sometimes worse because you, yeah. you want evidence. And I just started yelling. I was like, hey, meet us, which means like, what the fuck are you looking at? You know, uh, and I, I, this whole conversation happened in Spanish. Um, and like, I just started yelling, like screaming at him. And then he started screaming back at me. He was like, well, if you don't want me to look at you, then you should just stay home. And I just looked, like started just like screaming at him in front of the street, like all of these other things. And at the end, I was like, oh, my gosh, that's, like, one strategy that I haven't tried before. <laughs> like, <laughs> screaming my ass off. And it felt yeah. so good. It felt so good to be like, fuck you. Oh, sorry. I don't know if I'm supposed to curse in this. <laughs> oh, no, you, you can say whatever you want. You're good. <laughs> okay. So just, like, getting it out forcefully, like, energetically, because that anger is there and it has a lot of power, but I've, been, I've not been allowing it to come out. Um, and, you know, New York City is, like, no one will bat an eye if you're screaming. Yeah. Oh yeah, because we're just like oh, yeah. we're just like wild over here, uh, in like oh, a beautiful way. So, 
it was actually a, a it felt like an okay space to scream back and get into it good I think that that's awesome that's like that's a really empowering strategy in fighting back at that because why should we be silent and just try to ignore it mm-hmm. when even if like because not all of us I mean I know not everybody has that in them to be able to scream back and still feel safe and feel empowered but for those who do like do it <laughs> totally do it <laughs> afterwards I was like oh shit like I hope he's not gonna follow me I hope like his friends don't pull oh. up you know so yeah it, it is New York City is like a very public space. There's very few places you can go without there being a million people around you. So in that way, you know, it was kind of a perfect like city to do that in. Um, but also that that still also comes with implications of feeling unsafe, like standing up for yourself and using your voice takes courage. Um, and it takes some um ability to step into this space where you're not totally sure whether um um whether it's going to be safe for you or not. But, you know, on the other hand, it's also not safe for your mental health and for your emotional well-being to keep all of this inside of you. So it's complex. Oh, gosh. That's honestly, I love that you're teaching this kind of stuff in school because I I was just about to say there needs to be, like, some some kind of program that is, like, required for girls and boys in different ways just about just about this specific thing yeah so that's really cool um so tell me tell me more about you said before we started you wanted to talk about immigration and then you just mentioned that you came to America without a mother and I got so curious about your story with that do you do you mind sharing a little bit sure um so yeah my dad's side of the family had already immigrated to the U.S. Um, so that part of the family was here. Um, and my mom's family in Peru were like, you know, we come from very low income, uh, a very low income situation. So, um, when I had the chance to immigrate to the U S when I was 11, there's no question. Like if you get offered like an opportunity to move to the United States and you live in poverty in Peru, like, of course you're going to do it. Um, yeah. So, um, so yeah, I, I left there, uh, and I moved in with my aunt and uncle, my dad's sister, um, in, in upstate New York. Um, and it's like the bravest, most difficult thing I've had to do to date. Um, like leaving my mom, leaving my home language, leaving my culture, Leaving everything mm-hmm. and, and moving to, um, I moved to Putnam Valley. And at that point, um, this place in upstate New York was mostly white. Um, and there was no ESL program. Um, and there was only one other girl there who spoke Spanish. And she had to interpret for me for the first two months before I got to, like, know the language, know English better. Um, so... Yeah, that's it was it was really, really hard. And, you know, when we talk about embodiment um, and it felt like in my mind, when I think of it metaphorically, it felt like I was a beautiful young plant growing up in Peru. And then I was just like ripped off from the earth, like with my roots raw and just like Mm. placed somewhere else. Um, And. Yeah, it was really hard for me. And, you know, it was hard for me to adapt to the Northern Hemisphere. Like, I'd never endured such a cold winter, and I came in March. I remember the very first breath I took in the United States because it was the coldest breath I had ever taken in my life. As soon as I stepped out of the airplane, I breathed in, and I was like, why are my lungs cold? Oh, my gosh, I can't imagine. Because <laughs> New York is freezing. You're yeah, up there. <laughs> yeah, so so it, it was like complete disruption of my root system. And, like, my body felt so out of place and so confused. Um, so, yeah, I think a lot of times when we speak about immigration, um, we, there's not as much literature 
or at least that I've seen about what happens to your physical body, right? If my ancestry has been um, developing and growing in relationship to the lands in Peru for thousands of years, and then all of a sudden I am in this entirely different hemisphere, in an entirely different culture and language and music and everything, of course your body is, you know, it's, <laughs> I don't know. It feels like it got tuned to the wrong radio station or something. Oh, yeah. I can imagine that. My gosh. I just, I've, I just, I'm so curious as to what that felt like, just like on the day-to-day, like the big adjustment. Because it makes sense. It totally makes sense when you say why you went. And how old did you say you were? I was 11. 11. Okay, so... Like, that absolutely makes sense for why you would come to America. And it's so... I mean, I don't know what it was like back then. I know all the total disaster of all the things like that today when it comes to immigration. We won't get into all that, but it is just messy. And so I don't know what that process looked like back then, but I can imagine it was really, really scary. Really scary. And just... Even the language barrier, like what was that like when you, when you were living your first year trying to adjust? Like, did you make friends easily or was that (laughs) tough to go to school? Like what happened? So one of the reasons why I moved to the U.S. so young is because my dad's side of the family had already been here and their mentality is, um, assimilate as best as you can to American culture so that you can succeed and get money Mm. and, you know, the American dream, et cetera. Um, And so they, their main argument for me going, coming here so early was we don't want her to have an accent. We want her English to be so good that it sounds just like she was born here. Um, And they would tell my mom, you know, you can send her when she's 15, you can send her when she's 16, but it won't be as good. Because she'll sound like an immigrant. Um, and, and then doors will be shut. Wow. Which is true. <laughs> yeah. And at sadly. the same time, um, what, a, what a sacrifice to make. Yeah, your childhood, your motherhood, your home country at such an early age. So that your English can sound like American English. Um, mm-hmm. So that was really hard. Um, And, you know, part of that was when I got to my aunt's home, um, her husband is white American and she grew up speaking English. So her English is also flawless. I mean, flawless in terms of like no accent. Um, And they were like, "Okay, so you're here. You're not allowed to watch any TV in Spanish. You're not allowed to speak Spanish. Um, And that was really the only access I had to some like cultural familiarity was like Univision or um, like the, ch- the channel on TV in Spanish. And they were like, no, you're not allowed to watch that because you won't learn English as fast if you watch that. Um, and oh. so that felt really traumatizing. And, you know, thinking back to it, it's like um, it's almost like cultural genocide. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It's just it feels like it's just stealing everything about who you are and trying to morph you into something that I mean it makes sense why they would want that it's all just survival Mm -hmm. and like I I mean it's very similar to how we talked about uh patriarchal stuff it's like um the problem isn't there but it's in why you have to assimilate to American white honestly just like why it's just white supremacy like why is that all like that's where the problem is and so it just sucks so bad like I want to punch stuff when I think about it. <laughs> I get so heated about this just because why should you have to come why should your survival be based on you forgetting everything about who you are mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. hate that mm-hmm. I hate that so much because of very obvious reasons but (laughs) yeah how did you start to 
Or I mean, did did you feel like as a kid you were trying to, I'm assuming like try to do what they say because you're also trying to survive and they're your family and they're telling mm-hmm. you what's safe. So did you try and do that as they instructed you? I knew that was wrong. Um, so I would watch Univision when they, whenever they were not home. <laughs> Oh, you knew it was wrong. Yeah, I just knew that it was not okay. Cause, oh, good for you. Yeah, because it was really the only... It's not like I had people around me who I could speak Spanish to. Like, when I went to school, everyone there spoke English. Except for this one girl who... Oh, my gosh. I owe her so much. I, I've never really spoken to her since this. but I mean, since then. But she interpreted for me for teachers, for... Um, for students, for everyone in school, um, for two months, for two months, she interpreted for me. And I, I could tell that it was taxing on her and it was hard on her. She's Mexican. Um, um, but that was the only, like, that was, if she didn't do that, I don't know how I would have survived. Yeah. Yeah, it's like you'd think the school should be responsible for having no, some kind of exactly. They way. made her. They made her responsible for it. This other child. <laughs> oh my gosh, that weight that she I bet carried about that. I mean, good. I'm so happy that I'm so happy that she was there for you. She sounds like an incredible, incredible kid. That well, not kid anymore <laughs> as time has gone on. <laughs> But <laughs> we are adults now. <laughs> we are adults. That's still something I'm addressing too. But it's just an unfair responsibility that the school put on her. But yeah. props to her for helping you. I'm happy that you had her. Yeah, I really appreciate her. Her name is Eva. So it's <laughs> I, that's all if I know. I, <laughs> if I come across an Eva. <laughs> yeah. Who is from Mexico. Just thank all of them. <laughs> Okay, I'll thank every Ava I see, <laughs> just in case. And if not, they'll they'll just have a random good day for yeah, me. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I just have a couple more questions for you, um, if that's okay. So you talked about how you're you're very very uh, very interested and very um, just your life. There's a lot in your life about your ancestors right now and about these ceremonies and about uh, just history. What is that? Like, where did that come from? Did you always have that desire to be connected to your ancestors? Or did that, did you, did that get taken from you somewhere in the middle during the immigration transition? Or, like, what did that look like? Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, you know, we grew up, like when I grew up, my grandmother would always tell us stories about her life and her mother's life and her grandmother. And so I, I always grew up with them in my mind and in my heart. Um, and I always had their stories, um, like stories where women would do so like such powerful things that it almost felt supernatural. Um, so... And then, you know, when my grandmother died, um, she, again, she's from Sechura, which is a northern coastal um, indigenous town <clears throat> in Peru. And her one wish when she died was, I want to be buried in Sechura. Um, and so when she died, um, we went on the airplane with her body to her ancestral town, um, our, our ancestral town as well. But because we immigrated to the city, um, like few of her grandchildren had actually spent much time there. And so her death actually provided the opportunity for all of us, for all of her descendants to go back to the ancestral land. Um, and that was her last wish that we go there. Um, and so when we got there, like immediately we were met with family and guitars and a band and music and they had everything ready for her coffin and there was ceremony ready and there was an all-night vigil for her body and then the next day I spent hours taking off the 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 purple corn kernels um off of their off of their kernels so that we could make chicha morada and this ancestral food that we had to make for for the ceremony of her death and um, it was like a, a three or four day long um, preparation for her to move on into the next world. Um, 
and it was the first time that I really got to see that happen uh, in my ancestral town and be like, wow, this is mine. Um, these traditions are mine. Maybe one day when I pass, I will also pass um, through, I will also die in this ceremonial way, um, like my grandmother did. Um, and it's, <laughs> there's also like a funny story with this, my, so my brother, this is his first time ever going here to Sachuda. And um, we always like joke about my mom. We like make fun about my mom all the time, me and my brother. And my mom too, like our primary mode of communication is humor basically. And my brother was like talking about how before he'd ever been there, um, he had never seen people that walk like my mom walks. And he was like making fun of her. He was like, this is so hilarious. I finally understand why you walk like this. Um, like everyone in this town walks like you do. Um, <laughs> and I thought that was so funny. And we were just like making fun of her. But it's, it's in the way that we move our bodies. You know, the way our ancestors move around the world is in us, even if we are not still living in our ancestral homelands. You know, the way that we move about the world, the way that we embody is from our lineage. Um, mm. And so in, in this sort of like jokingly way, my brother had actually discovered um, that the way that we move comes from a specific place in a town in the northern coast of Peru. Um, and so, yeah, since then I've just been... Um, studying ceramics and I'm an artist um, so a lot of the work that I do is um, inspired and in direct lineage to the great ceramic masters um, like the Moche ceramic masters and Mochica and Nazca um, Biru, Vicus um, all of these cultures, ancient cultures from Peru um, that had a sacred relationship to clay and ceramics and the pieces um, the vessels that come from that lineage were connected to ceremony uh, and connected to also the ceremony of death, right? Because a lot of them, the reason why we have them now, thousands of years after they were originally created, is that they were buried. They were buried in ceremonial graves. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, like deep, deep, deep in the ground. Um, otherwise, they wouldn't have survived, right? They were preserved in graves deep in the ground um and so um like studying that and following that lineage also implies like going into those graves right like stepping into that darkness stepping into that shadow stepping into that power that you need um to to help these pieces embody again hundreds and thousands of years in the future uh, from from when from their original birth. Hmm. Oh my gosh, that is so special. So that's that's where you get the inspiration for your art. You're saying the pieces that they've they're found finding from ceremonies. Yep, from uh, burial sites, ceremonial burial sites. In okay, yeah. that's so cool. I a hundred percent get why you're being so careful in what you do with them and how they live on. That's so special that you're able to give them another, another life, another body. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, in one of your Instagram posts, you said, uh, well, there's two things. There's very similar though. One of them was every art piece informs my own embodiment. And then sometimes I make pieces to embody how I wish I embodied. Do you want to, um, talk a little bit about what you mean in those two in those two posts sure um so that one piece I think if I'm remembering correctly where I posted that um it's um it's a water vessel and um there's so many like beautiful imagery of like like powerful um like goddess or just like priestess energy um, in so many of these pieces, right? Like the divine feminine, the dark, powerful feminine. Um, 
and it's all there in our history. You know, we have our ceramics, and that holds our history. Um, so, so when we see, like, when I see the ways in which they would portray, for example, um, the vagina, there are some pieces where, like, the vagina is so big, it takes up, like, almost, like, I don't know, maybe, like, 50% of the entire mass of the piece. Um, and it's, it's there, and you can just see that it's a portal. You can see it holds power. You can see that um, it's cherished. Um, <laughs> and, and that's, like, almost in direct contrast to how I had to put away my, my vagina right when I was young. Oh, yeah. Um, and so it's like a, it's like a total, um, it's like that, that juxtaposition is so rich. You know, this piece of my ancestors telling me, be proud, be big, open up, air out, like find the power in the portal that you have inside of you versus now living hundreds of years in the future in patriarchy where I am actually being asked to close it and put it mm. away and place it in the shadow world. Um, so learning from the pieces um, about what it was like to live back then and to feel powerful back then, um, yeah, it, I'm learning so much. Wow, that is, that is so cool. That is so cool. I want to go read about all the different pieces that, that you've posted and made. I think that those stories are so special and they just they share so much goodness. So I'm really happy that you're making all those pieces. Um, so my last my last question for you uh, has nothing to do with anything we've been talking about. <laughs> so it's very important, obviously. Um, would you rather have all of the furniture in your home come to life while you're home by yourself, not when you have guests over, just when you're by yourself, like they do in Beauty and the Beast? Um, they all have their own personalities, just like in the movie. Some are cool, some are mean. Uh, it's kind of difficult to quiet them down when you're ready for bed, but you're never lonely. They're always there. Or would you rather everywhere you go, you travel by leaf blower, and you ride on the leaf blower like, like a flying witch's broom? but it's a leaf blower and it blows out lucky charms whenever you want it to. So if you like pass a bunch of kids or not lucky charms, it blows out candy because then they'll be wrapped in okay to eat versus just stray cereal pieces gone rogue. Um, which would you rather do? Well, they both sound amazing. Um, <laughs> I want both of them, but I, I'm going to take the, I'm going to take the, the leaf blower but just because I identify as a bruja, like I'm all about the witchy vibes. Um, oh, I love it. Also, I want I want the lucky charms, but like literal lucky charms. Like I, like I fly around, um, like throwing throwing people like little pieces of special um, special energetic. Um, I don't know, maybe rocks, like cute little crystals that are actually their lucky charms. Oh, that's so cool. That's way better than the cereal. Yeah, so much better. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Literal lucky charms. Oh my charms. gosh. Yeah. Literal lucky charms, better than the little fake marshmallows. I totally agree with you. Oh my gosh. Well, this has been such an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for letting me just pick your brain and ask you all the things and just share your story into, into the world of my side of the internet. I'm really, really honored to be able to be able to talk to you oh thank you so much Jackie and you know I, I love the work that you're doing and I really admire that you're collecting all of these stories from different people about embodiment um so I, again I'm also feeling very honored and lucky that that you invited me mm, thank you so so much where where can people find you and your work right now primarily my art is through my Instagram I might build a website soon but I'm not there yet um my, <laughs> my Instagram <laughs> handle is tierra jewels so tierra is the word in Spanish for earth um and you spell it t-i-e-r-r-a 
J U L Z. Jules is just abbreviation for my name. So Tierra Jules. Um, that's my okay. Instagram. But then I also have, I do have a website, but that's more for um, the my social work, like healing therapy uh, mm. offering. Uh, and that one is julisajosa.com. So it's my first name, my last name, .com. Okay. Awesome. So if anyone is in the Queens area needs yeah needs some help then <laughs> I'll send them. I'll put all these I'll put all these links in the description box below for you guys to go find and follow Julissa. I highly recommend. I've had so much fun reading through her different posts and looking at her her different creations. So thank you so much again. I will see you flying on your uh, leaf blower. <laughs> I'll look for the crystals and then I'll find you and wave at you. <laughs> yes, and I'll be sending you some lucky charms. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you so much. I will we'll talk to you later. Yes. Talk soon. Bye. Bye. If you have enjoyed listening to the Unity Project podcast and you want to find out how to get more involved in what I am doing, then go follow me on Instagram if you haven't already. It's JackieG.TV. Uh, that's where I post all the things about this and other things that I'm working on, like my new book coming up. A lot of it is having to do with this podcast, so definitely stay tuned for that if you enjoyed this. But anything else you could be interested in is on the gram. Thank you so much for listening, and I will talk to you guys next time.